This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Exactly a year ago, the BJP-led government of India read down Article 370 of the Indian Constitution and divided the then state of Jammu and Kashmir into two union territories. Why did the government of India take this drastic step? What has been the situation in Jammu and Kashmir since the constitutional change? What is the state of politics in Jammu and Kashmir today? More importantly, how accurate is the argument that Article 370 and 35A of the Indian Constitution hindered the economic growth of Jammu and Kashmir? And what lies ahead for Jammu and Kashmir now? To discuss these issues and more, I have with me Dr. Haseeb Drabu, the former finance minister of Jammu and Kashmir. He was earlier the chairman of the Jammu and Kashmir Bank. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Dr. Haseeb Drabu. Um, let me let me begin with um, this question about what happened in August 2019. The government of India, led by the Bharatiya Janata Party, read down Article 370, uh, withdrew the special status given to Jammu and Kashmir, divided the state into two union territories, uh, and placed the Jammu and Kashmir union territory under a lieutenant governor who reports to the Union Home Ministry. What? led to the drastic uh, this particular drastic step uh, that the government of india took in august 2019 what is your reading of the situation well um bjp has been saying for the last 70 years it is an ideological issue with them and it starts in jammu as soon as the special status was worked out the uh, agitation starts in jammu which was very famously known as the ek vidhan ek pradhan right. ek samvidhan agitation right and if any city can claim to be at par with nagpur in terms of its ideology it is jammu it had a very strong presence of uh, the rss and the praja parishad at that point right so uh, it started then what eventually became the bjp comes from there so it's a and every single election manifesto that i have read of the bjp has been making this point so it honestly was there on top of the agenda now the what exact thing triggered it is still something that there is no great clarity at least i don't have that clarity but uh, i'm not surprised by this um this development because uh, it's it's an ideological uh, it has been an ideological issue with them and once they got the kind of mandate that they got they have kind of put it in place so uh, the conjectural factors on that particular moment are not really important so that is one part of this thing second in terms of uh, if you look at 370 the abrogation of 370 i think on august 4 2019 um what existed as 370 it was the greatest fraud perpetuated by the government of india 
on the people of JNK, led politically by the Congress Party. Between 54 and 2019, I'll say, there's been a sequence of events which is detailed and long. Right. You're very well aware of it. So August 4, Article 370 was the biggest fraud perpetuated by the government of India or the people of JNK. On August 5th, it was a bigger fraud perpetuated on the people of India. What was there to abrogate? Even as early as 1964, on December 3rd, Guzairalal Nanda, who was the Home Minister, tells the Parliament that we have emptied Article 370. Whether it stays or not makes no difference. And this is repeated by the Prime Minister in January in the Parliament, saying the process has started, it is over now. 370 has no meaning. But so that is what not how. Right. The, right. What uh, did the BJP abrogate then, really speaking, in terms of effectively? Optics of it, yes, I understand. Politics of it, I understand. Substantively, in terms of the actual things that would have changed, what is it that has happened? Important things have happened post uh, the abrogation of Article 70, which is not getting as much play in the media as it ought to have got. Whether it's in terms of the domicile rights, whether it's in terms of the delimitation, whether it's in terms of you know, powers that are now given to army to acquire land and so on and so forth, all kinds of stuff. So the real work is happening post of August. But for the optics of it, yes, of course. And I'm seeing it purely from a Kashmir perspective. When you look at the national perspective, it's different. Because there is this whole uh, thing which has been built up that you have reintegrated Kashmir. That was a big uh, kind of, that's how it was packaged and positioned. So I think that's where one should kind of look at. Right, so you are essentially saying that what happened in August 2019 is, was essentially driven by BJP's ideology uh, going back a very long time. However, the BJP sold it very differently in, in August last year. It said that uh, uh, the removal of Article 370 or reading down of it will lead to uh, empowerment of the people of Jammu and Kashmir, will lead to economic development, it will lead to uh, uprooting of terrorism, etc. Et they, they never spoke of ideology at all. They, they had a completely different uh, set of um, reasons to uh, justify this. So, you see, that is how you package and position it. I'm saying, so what is the reason for it is fundamentally the fact of their own ideology which they have been articulating for the last 70 years. It's a commitment which they have been making by election after election. It's something that the RSS has been su suggesting for the last 70 years, I say. So, I am not really saying that, you know, uh, how they packaged it. Of course, that is different. That uh, and that we can debate and discuss whether that will, but that's of course not the, not the real reason. Let's talk about the packaging a bit. Um, uh, one year later, uh, I mean, this is this is this is almost twelve months after the um, um, the drastic decision was taken in August last year. What has changed on the ground, uh, violence-wise, development-wise? Um, um, are, are people happy about it? What's your sense of uh, what's happening on the ground? What has changed on the ground? If any, at all. Well, I not that I expected any change. As I said, since you know uh, um, August fifth, not that I have been back in the state, but uh, of course there is uh, you know a huge kind of uh, at it's a very layered kind of a thing. If you ask me, um, it in some ways uh, the whole the way the package was designed, I must say, I mean, 
was carefully thought through. The fact that you converted it to a union territory. Now, constitutional things apart, whether, I mean, I have written about it. That I, I'll, come to that, I'll come to that in a minute, I know. And, uh, but leaving that aside for the moment, uh, in terms of uh, what the constitutional validity of all this is, the, the fact remains that uh, on ground, um, with this package of 370, 35A, Union Territory and all that, uh, the overwhelming sense that I get from people in Kashmir, uh, people like myself also, feel very, very humiliated, extremely humiliated, extremely betrayed by this, not just the fact of what was done, but also how it was done. So there is a whole, uh, both these things are very, very important. Um, I have, again, I, I mean, I've written about it. I don't, I don't agree at all that 370 or a special position in JNK hampered the economic development of JNK. I mean, there's no question about that. And when economic development is talked about, you take any indicator, any development indicator in the world, whether it is literacy, lifespan, whatever, social spending, any indicator, JNK is way much better than many, many states, which include states like Gujarat and Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, which are like good states, right? They are the better performing states, federally speaking. We are better than that in terms of, you know, life expectancy at birth, for instance, literacy, yeah, power, right. all right. the indicators are much better. So if 370 had been a dampener for development, then this wouldn't have happened. Let's, let's deal with that issue. Let, let's look at the two issues here. One is about whether or not um, Article 370 was a hindrance um, for development in the state. Um, and the other issue of whether or not Kashmir is doing better because of central um, um, economic assistance. Now, let's discuss the first, first one first. Whether Article 370 did play the role of uh, um, as, as a roadblock uh, in the economic development of Jammu and Kashmir state, the then state of Jammu and Kashmir. Absolutely not. I mean, if you look at what was 370 doing, I mean, it, it was not acting as a barrier. Now, this barrier is the is being constructed by the BJP in response to the Congress narrative of a bridge. Article 370 was called as the bridge or the tunnel through which much traffic has passed, as they said in the parliament that time also. So a bridge, how does a bridge become a barrier? I mean, purely in terms of economic development, I can't think of a single reason. You can't buy land, for instance. People say you can't, uh, an outsider cannot go up, go there and set up industries. Um, yeah. And these are, these are real reasons, they, they would say. Now, there itself, uh, it has nothing with 370, it refers specifically to Article 35A. It has nothing with 370, buying of land. Right, right. However, 35A draws its origins thing from... Uh, uh, ordinance in 1927, the state subject notification of Maharaja. Clause 4 of that notification had a provision for giving land for developmental purposes, for industrial purposes, for corporate purposes, and for any other pur purpose that is deemed good for the state. From 1927, this is a clause. It exists even in the thing 35. Right from 1960 onwards, when industrial policy was first um, kind of uh, worked out in GNK, from that time onwards, not only land is available 
it has been given to corporates it's available at it was available at throwaway prices and people availed of it also how was chirab textile mill in jnk it's a birla enterprise birla it came to jnk 1964 how did it do so i am sure you have traveled to srinagar how was oberoi's uh, hotel there how was indian taj uh, indian hotels there taj how were they there if land is not available how were they there were they illegally there so it makes no sense because there is a provision in the law and not only that we have government of jnk has given enormous amount not only land the government of jnk gave enormous amounts of subsidies for people to come there were fiscal concessions i had worked out while i was finance minister and i had presented to the cabinet also that the amount of money that the state government has given as incentive to industry is more than the total investment that has come i have never heard of this anywhere else and i am not adding up the central incentives of excise exemptions and so on and so forth mm -hmm. i'm just adding the state uh, incentives the tot if you were to sit down and calculate how much money has the or revenue has the state foregone and how much it has given it is more than the total investment in jnk so what are we talking of here and, and there is very little public corporate investment in in jnk and, from government and we are talking of private when you talk of private investment uh, you are really talking of post 90s till 90s there was no major public investment happening in india it's all uh, private investment it's all public investment right right so we are between 50 and 90 what happened it was private uh, public investment not a penny came to jnk not a penny came to jnk you know so in a sense that if you were to look and government of india had no uh, no constraints uh, in terms of um, uh, acquiring land they didn't face article 370 they how come that uh, psus uh, didn't invest in jnk right right you know you can talk about private investment post 90s because by by 90 militancy had set in um, in jnk and why would a private corporate investment want in us there a the overall situation is not very conducive b infrastructure is very very poor um so forget 90 i i can understand 90 because i even as economic advisor yeah. government i led a lot of corporates to jnk nobody was interested you have power shortages now you have internet issues you have all kinds of stuff the real question to be asked is why didn't government of india invest through its cpsus there are 300 psus and their total investments in the country are 25 lakh crores which is 25 times the sdp of jnk hmm. and they employ more than 1 million people as of march 31 2019 which is when the numbers came How much have they invested in JNK in the last seventy uh, years? Hundred and fifty crores. Out of twenty-five lakh crores, it is staggering. How much have they invested in JNK? Twenty-five crores. One twenty-five, one fifty crores. And out of a million people that CPSUs employ, how many are there from JNK in JNK? Twenty-one. Wow. And as JNK Bank Chairman, I have sanctioned loans worth 150 crores, right, to locals 
And what are we talking of here? We are talking of 25 lakh crores, even if, you know, and if there was a developmental um, uh, issue, it rests with the government of India. Why did they not do that? All right. I, I, understand, I, understand, I understand that point, Dr. Drabo. Let me, let me ask you a slightly different question, which is, it is widely believed that the Jammu and Kashmir, the then Jammu and Kashmir state, has been uh, traditionally been highly subsidized by the government of India. Tens of thousands of crores were given to Jammu and Kashmir on an annual basis for its development. And that perhaps explains the argument that you earlier made, which is, you know, Jammu and Kashmir uh, is doing much better than most other states um, in the, as far as poverty is concerned, unemployment, or even uh, for that matter, literacy. Um, when you were finance minister in Jammu and Kashmir, in fact, you negotiated um, the PM development package of almost 80,000 uh, crore rupees. So, uh, how do you sort of answer that sort of a uh, that sort of a public perception, as it were? It's an important question, and I think it's uh, it's good that you asked this. I want to make a distinction here between the government of JNK and the economy of JNK. Right. Okay, that's an important distinction to make. Right. Uh, the central government has been funding liberally the government of JNK not the economy of JNK. So large amounts of money have come uh, in terms of transfers from center to state, which happen with every state. So if you look at it from that perspective, JNK gets what is due in the constitution. You can't get outside the constitution. There is a laid out scheme, central state transfers. There's a share in taxes which you will get as per the formula of the Finance Commission, which JNK got. Then you would get planned transfer, which have stopped now for all states, uh, central state plans. You would get that. You would, uh, JNK was a special category state, not in the 370, but by an executive order of Planning Commission, 10 of them were special category states. So they would get what is due to them. How would center give money outside of that scheme? No special packages? If not, no, I come to that also. I come to packages also. There are only two packages in JNK which have ever happened. And I have had the privilege of heading both. One as economic advisor and one as uh, finance minister. There is no third package. In fact, my argument with the government of India was this. Both times, as economic advisor first. And I remember Dr. Manmohan Singh was the uh, prime minister since I had, right. I knew him and I had worked with him. I walked up to him and said, sir, why are we doing this? Why can't you give me the same money? I'll do it as a package because it's getting into funding revenue deficits. And that hmm. nobody has a track. So I'm not going to ask for more money. I just want you to reorganize various things that are happening all around and we worked out a package. Interestingly, I asked for 6,000 crores and when it was announced in JNK, it had become 26,000 crores. And that is how it invariably works because some bureaucrat somewhere in finance ministry trying to look good added 18,000 crores of Government of India equity into power projects, which are not owned by JNK, which are owned by Government of India. And said, and so I walked up to Sanjay Baru that time, who was, I mean, I was a friend of mine. And I asked him, I said, Sanjay, did I hear, because the, uh, the Prime Minister was speaking from the dais and I was sitting in the thing. So when I heard this 26,000 crores, I was like, what happened here? Because we didn't, you know. And then it turned out that it was like, you know, 18,000 crores. Now, when you look at it, you will see another 26,000 crores. Fact is, it was only 4,600 crores. 18,000 crores were absolute nonsense. They were like, you know, putting uh, thing. Now the same thing, we negotiated a package of 80,000 crores. 
Now, while there were additionalities for it, but every single thing came from where you actually could get shares. Like, you know, in Sarasikshabhyan, you would get money. So you got a little more money than you would normally expect. So it's not as if it's a hugely subsidized. I think this comes from a historical baggage, which was very brilliantly handled by uh, Sheikh Abdullah at that time, who said, Ki, let's, I'll not eat rice because rice is subsidized. I'll eat potatoes. I don't want subsidies from government. It became a, you know, it was a brilliant, brilliant political move. And uh, it kind of, you know, uh, the whole subsidy culture came in from there. Yes, can that's you, can, can you explain the argument that you made a little earlier, which is uh, one needs to make a distinction between the money that is given to Jammu and Kashmir government and the money that is given to Jammu and Kashmir economy? Yeah. So what is happening is, for a variety of reasons, you can discuss that as well. There is a revenue deficit right. in the government's own budget, right. which really means interest, salaries, pensions. That's it. It has no developmental expenditure. They fund that. But they're not funding economic development. They are funding the employees of the government of JNK. You may want to know why does Kashmir have, JNK have four and a half lakh employees and Bihar has only four lakh and Darbanga district is bigger than Kashmir, right? Why that happened? That's a different story. It starts somewhere in 1953 when the first uh, thing is done, when Sheikh is sacked and all that and to buy. So it's like a a layered form of corruption as a mode of cohesion that you want to build everybody stakes the system you start liberalizing government employment and all patronage anecdotal evidence on how bakshi Mahmud would appoint people on their cigarette foils you know you have the cigarette packets with those foils he would write orders in that it's a proper anecdotal history in kashmir so it starts with that and you are funding the government not the economy of jnk Funding the investing in the economy of JNK is very different from funding a government uh, budget. The money right. that is given to Jammu and Kashmir for security expenses, uh, where are they counted? Um, it's uh, it's a, it comes under a category called security reimbursement expenditure. Okay. But then also, you know, when you look at it in a little more granular manner, then it becomes a little more complicated. For instance, during floods. Since uh, I'm aware of this as finance minister, I can share this with you. Um, I think Air Force had done some work right. for, for the government of Kenki. Right. And all of a sudden, we were landed with a bill saying you have to pay them. You know, saying that now if, you know, so you are getting money from one quarter and giving to the other quarter, right? And we are not fighting, we were not fighting a local battle. We were fighting a battle for the country, right? So it, it has to be a shared expenditure. So we found that that killed us. No, but there were many other things. We, we took a lot of debt early on. Why? Because the 70-30 ratio didn't figure. The 90-10, 90% grant, 10% loan wasn't applied to GNK. As an economist, as a policymaker, I have objected to it, saying we, I don't think we deserve that because we are a good state. We have good. Our tax SDP ratios are very good. Right. They are comparable to Karnataka, which are the middle income better states. This, despite the fact that we are an agrarian economy, so it's been taxed well. Our problem on the government side is expenditures, partly security, partly not managed well, whatever. So it is that funding that comes into your eye. So if it is, if, if, the, if the, uh, the fact that Jammu and Kashmir and its people have been doing well economically, uh, educationally, etc., etc., is not explained by the fact that they have been funded by the government of India, what explains that? 
oh, oh, massive, massive structural features, which nowhere in the world, I would say, which is, please realize that JNK was the first non-communist government in the world right. to introduce land reforms. Whereas the rest of the country is struggling with subsistence agriculture. As an unintended consequence of land reforms, we had commercial agriculture. Do you even realize, we keep talking about tourism and film industry. Do you even realize that India is the fifth largest producer of apples in the world? And Kashmir on its own is the sixth largest producer in the world. Wow. And if I had started something there, it was a massive program for uh, replantation and uh, high density orchards, which has come up a little. I don't know how it's gone now. I had shown, submitted a note to the government of India, also published it subsequently, that if we follow this developmental paradigm, which is sustainable ecologically and otherwise, in five years' time, India would be the second largest producer of apples in the world. Second largest in the world. On base of what? One thing, that is JNK. We don't, we refuse to look at these things. We have now decided to give some 35 uh, kind of uh, industrial estates, some 10,000 canals. Now, tomorrow, you will not be able to, you know, figure out whether you are in a pet shop of Dharavi or you are in Kameer, or you are in the old mill road of Bombay because that kind of industry will come. I, I don't think that's what we want to do. If the whole world is looking at an environmentally sustainable thing and you have such an opportunity such a market, such diversity of commercial agriculture. And you don't have to worry about income distribution, like you have to worry about industrial development because it has its own mechanisms of income distribution, right? right? You have a very right. good egalitarian asset distribution, right? That's right? If you look at, you have to look at some of the numbers. It's, it is striking. The debt to asset ratio, which is done by the NSS, it is not done by JNK government. NSS has done it. They do it every year. The debt to asset ratio is the lowest in JNK, even better than Punjab. Because that is interesting. Because people have not, they don't need, because you, you don't realize 1951, 75% of debt was taken out. Debt tribunal was set off, 50% debt maf, 50% whatever. So you created an enabling strike. This is precisely what in economic development, you know, what uh, the hinterland problem had been addressed. It's a consequence of that. It's not a consequence of money that is going in. If there is one consequence of the government of India money coming in through various routes, it is an perverse income distribution because only few people got access to it because of a system, whichever way. Plus, of course, when you look at the money that's coming into JNK in the budget, that is substantially lower than what actually comes in. A lot of unaccounted money comes from various sources. So you have created a situation there where there are grave economic problems, grave economic structural economic problems are there in the, in the, in the system because, for instance, you have an asset price bubble. The land in jail right. is as expensive right. Bombay. So Article 370 and 35A did not hamper economic development in Jammu and Kashmir. Will Jammu and Kashmir become a union territory? Will that actively hamper economic development in Jammu and Kashmir? Just reversing that question, that's all. Of course it will, because, you know, and um, um, 
because what is happening is you are now making policy remotely from new delhi right all right. economic policy evolves in relation to how your legislative structure is hmm. because you were an empowered legislator you could do a number of things starting off with land reforms no other indian right. state could do because you would violate the constitution of india article 14 right to property as a fundamental right that is why in fact that is one reason why 370 was put in because you wanted to carry forward land reforms which could not have been carried out under indian constitution that's right so when you have an empowered so you can my regret to be honest with you as a professional is that we did not leverage 370 enough we could have actually shown the rest of the country what could be done one example industrial development regulation act 1957 huge constraint it took rest of the country some 30 years and manmohan singh to abolish it apply to jnk so you could have very well done what you wanted so the legacy of a protectionist controlled command raj economy didn't exist in jnk so i forever was arguing why don't you make this jnk a model case and test out for instance we were looking at we were trying to see bombay should become the financial hub right right you could burn of sure banking and all you still have not be able to do it why because there are 20 uh, policies which prevent that none of those apply to jnk you could have very easily set up an offshore banking center in jnk without without even bothering to do anything so we never positively i said this in the assembly also i said my regret is that we have not leveraged develop, uh, 370 we have used it for political purposes but not for developmental purposes it could have been used so it's certainly right. not a de- development dampener if there's a fault it was with the fact that nobody saw it saw the potential of 370 uh, right. to bring in those changes which rest of the country could not have brought it right um, dr prabhu <laughs> let me shift gears a bit um, you know the pdp bjp alliance that uh, um, has that has been widely blamed for bringing bjp um, into kashmir where it uh, did not have any existence at all and this bjp then thereafter of course took away the special status and also the statehood of jammu and kashmir you were one of the architects of the bjp pdp alliance you had negotiated uh, the various uh, uh, policy plans with uh, the the uh, bjp leaders as it were looking back at uh, uh, the last few year, few years and what happened last year in particular do you regret uh, the alliance that you put together with the bjp after the elections let me first respond to this that pdp brought in bjp mm-hmm. i had said on and also a clarification that i certainly was not the architect but i was the negotiator Right. and it was a decision which was taken by the party and uh, i mean i can put it on record here that it was a decision taken only by one man which is mufti saab and out of conviction yeah and for very good reasons there'll be time on occasion to talk about that but uh, how it panned out is different and not that he didn't realize that but he was willing to take that risk because he this is the only option he saw and he did it in okay. good faith a lot of conviction not out of compulsion Uh, so having said that so it's p uh, brought in uh, bjp does anybody realize that in the 2014 election bjp was the single largest party in jammu and kashmir in terms right. of vote percentage no in terms of vote percentages it was better than pdp it was better than 
NC. And when elections happened, there was no question of an alliance between BJP and PDP. So PDP came, uh, BJP came into JNK on its own merit in Jammu. That is a subset now. But PDP or Mufti Sayyid did not, or Hasib Dravu did not bring in BJP into uh, Jammu. They were the single, they had 23% vote share. PDP but had only 20. But PDP for the elections in Kashmir on an anti-BJP plank. No, no, why PDP? I fought the election on it. Every time I would go to my constituency, I would say that. Yes. But I would also say that this time around, please make sure that you vote one party. If you want to vote right. NC, please vote, but give them a majority. That didn't right. happen. So you were going, there was, and you can't build a certain thing based on what you had thought. It's an evolving situation. We went into the, as PDP, went into election. I don't know about the larger thing, I can speak for myself. I would right. go and campaign in my constituency about this. Absolutely right. right. I had only three issues. One was floods, one was BJP, one was apples. I fought my thing on, I had one slogan in my uh, entire campaign. Ek kanal ka ek lakh, which was like the apple cutting, which is coming true now. Okay. So that's a fact. But situation evolved. We had 27 seats. They had 25 seats. And the real dilemma was, if you were to form a government without BJP, how will you run the state? Because you are negating the mandate of Jammu, which was very, very critical for governance purposes or ideologically for Muftiza. That I will not be able to run the state if I have nobody from Jammu. Did you also realize that Jammu Congress did not win a single seat? I mean, they didn't have the kind of where you could you could conceivably tie a tie up with NC and uh, with uh, with Congress, but that would not change the basic fact that Jammu would go unrepresented. And if you were to then get people from Jammu who were not elected, then you are violating the entire mandate or the logic of an election. So it was from that purpose. And also a very considered view of Muthi Saab that before I kind of reach out to Delhi, I must first reach out to Jammu. The gap between Jammu and Kashmir was very, very wide and he was trying to bridge that. How it panned out is a separate thing. We can have separate explanations for that. In, in 2014, um, uh, Mr. Saeed and uh, your, your former party PDP took a pragmatic decision to align with the BJP. Today, there are people in Kashmir, including some of your colleagues, Mr. Altar Bukhari, who is making the argument, who are making the argument that, uh, you know, we should, we should look for what is possible, uh, we should look for what is achievable, and be pragmatic about it. So, Article 370 is uh, gone. Why not ask for the return of statehood? Um, what do you say to those people who believe in such pragmatic politics? Isn't, isn't pragmatic politics, uh, you know, something that works at the end of the day? I would say to each his own. But learn from experience, number one. Number two, this is a different world. You're playing a politics of a very different era. Sheikh Abdullah could survive speaking of nationalism in Delhi, communism in Kashmir, and communism in Jammu. But nobody knew about it because there was no right. internet. That is true. It is very famous about Sheikh Abdullah. He was the greatest nationalist in Delhi, the biggest communist in Kashmir, and the biggest communist in Jammu. Now, nobody knew this because there was no internet. Right? Today, everybody knows that statehood has to happen. I mean, look, even though the bigger disappointment for me is that nobody has stood up for uh, Kashmir when, when the federalism of India was put on a hanger and left out to dry, 
fact remains that you can't do this beyond two years, three years, right? So what are you asking for? It's a foregone conclusion. In fact, the the Home Minister who converted the state into a union territory at that point itself said at the right time and right over we converted back to a state, right? So what are you asking for? You are trying to take credit for a development that may happen. Valid in 1950, 1960, 1970, not in 2020. People know it because the information download is so much that even before you and I know they are they are available, you know, they are up on date on that. So I would just say that, you know, be a little more savvy and right. uh, be a little more honest. I have no problem. They want to work with anybody that's their prerogative. People will vote for them or not vote for them. Right, so that should that is their choice. But also, let's not kind of degrade ourselves to this point that people don't understand. People do understand. So, if they but want to make a pragmatic decision, and what is pragmatic in Mufti's time may not be pragmatic now, because something a historical thing has happened in between. Things have changed, but right. they may find it still relevant. Yeah, I mean, did Sheikh Abdullah not support an RSS candidate in municipality in as early as 1953? 52? Did he not support them outside 1965 saying that, yeah, in Jammu? Why are we raising it today? And for what purpose? I mean, they have, you know, uh, a proper presence in the valley now. They may not have had one seats, but in the state, they had 23% vote share, more than the, what PDP had. And what right does anyone have to kind of uh, deny that? You but don't want to vote for them? Talking about uh, um, your days of campaigning in Kashmir in 2014, you wrote recently that Kashmiri people don't see mainstream Kashmiri parties as having any role in the resolution of the Kashmir issue, as it were. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, when I, you know, I was uh, somebody who had kind of contributed to the whole self-rule document, and I was seen as somebody who had a, you know, access to Mufti Saab and we were discussing and, you know, he had taken great pains to get me in and whatever. So I did expect that when I go camping, people ask me, you know, what is self-rule about? What is this? How? Nothing. So I'm wondering what is happening. You know, people would talk to me and I was amazed by this, that people would talk to me in a remote village. I still remember. It was called Sukhpur. It's a small village in my constituency. And they would refer to some article I had written in Greater Kashmir saying, that you said this, what happened to that? But nobody ever raised the self-rule. Nobody ever raised autonomy. Nobody raised 370. Then was kind of, what is happening? Then you realize that they just feel that this is not your mandate. You are into governance within a framework. A glorified municipality. Right. What we have become eventually. So, right. uh, <laughs> so they were really talking about, you know, those things that, you know, uh, uh, the big concerns in a village were, were uh, generators, transformers for, uh, for power graveyard fencing, those kinds of developmental issues, local issues. So they had kind of said, you know, you guys are not into that. You're not even worth talking about it. But the whole sentiment, the ambience was very, very palpable, which again I've written that very palpable. That if you had to kind of go and campaign and you went to a house, you know, people would talk about that is Garkal Bacha militant hai. There was awe, there was respect. Yeah, yeah, of course. And they would determine whether the village would vote or not vote. What world are we living in? So which is why I said in that piece that you referred to that militancy had become a rite of passage, so to say. Because their social standing had improved. 
you know, the social standing had improved. I remember, I know people whose children had died in this whole uh, thing, how they were treated, or those who had active militants that time, their kids, they would be treated differently. So there was a certain sense of that, which is why I kind of said that they had decided that, and there's no confusion on that. You are into development, these guys are into resolution. Uh, here, here is my final question. I mean, there's a lot of talk in Delhi about Vikas or development. And one of the reasons why Article 370 and 35A have been removed is because it really wants to usher in uh, good governance and development in Jammu and Kashmir. Is it possible to have development in Kashmir without conflict resolution? Now, let me, let me draw your attention to the Jammu and Kashmir's own economic survey, which estimated that protests and violence over a five-month period of July 2016 uh, to November 2016, cost economic loss worth 16,000 crore rupees. The point that I'm trying to ask is: the question that I'm trying to ask is, is it possible for New Delhi to build peace and resolve conflicts in Kashmir merely through economic empowerment, even if that is the what what the intention is? Um, two parts that uh, the young survey you're referring to is something that I had done there and tried right. to figure out. You know, how do you if you are, you know, shut for 360 days, I don't know how people survive. That's a very, very important question to answer. People have not answered the ask a question. Right. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, economic development, um, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, there's only one condition required for Kashmir to prosper, which is peace. And it's a, it doesn't need an economist to tell you that. Mm -hmm. uh, investments are not political. They need an enabling environment of peace. After that is there, they need an environment of infrastructure, which again uh, is not there right now. Uh, hasn't been there for the last 30 years. Power is a big, big uh, luxury. So uh, you will not, no matter what you do, and the easiest thing for government of India to do is not to rely on private sector investments. In any case, for the next three years with COVID and all, I don't see anybody. There's no investment happening in the rest of the country. Where will Why will it go to? Uh, uh, Kashmir. The only option really is state-led development by the union through its CPSUs. That let us put some money and get some things into place. Even after you do that, suppose you were to do that and make a massive plan, most like exactly like what uh, you've done for the Asian Tigers. You know, that yeah. whole state-led yeah. industrial development, Singapore, that kind of stuff. Take massive funds, push it in or whatever. Will you kind of Obviate the uh, problem? No. You may lessen the intensity of the issue. You may get people busier to lives. It may build stakes into the system. That is true. That's long term. But it will not resolve the issue for you, no matter what you do. It is a political issue. It has huge social moorings, which is why I am convinced of that we need to look at that. But the manifestation of it is very, very political. And unless it is addressed at that level, no amount of pump priming, subsidization, glorification, repression will solve it. It has to be handled in a much more thoughtful, careful manner. And some of it, though it's not worked, some of it was done like that. You know, you are trying to build a, a narrative that, uh, that actually helps bridge the gap, which in this whole desire to play optics in politics has been lost. So a certain degree of political gravitas is needed. 
if you want to go further down uh, the right path in JNK. Dr. Rav, wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.